0: Hey folks and welcome to Typology, the show in which we explore the mystery of the human personality through the lens of the Enneagram. I'm Anthony Skinner, producer of the show, and we are in downtown Franklin, Tennessee, voted one of the best small towns in the USA, where Ian is hosting a two-day interactive Enneagram experience. If you weren't able to make this one, and there's been several people that have already been asking, uh, when is the next one, or come to our town? be sure and stay in touch with us by getting on Ian's email list at iancron.com as well as the IX.co. That's the nine dot t h e i x dot C-O. And you can stay in touch with us in the social media circles too with Twitter and Instagram. It's at Typology Podcast. Ian's Twitter is at iancron.com. And his Instagram is at IanMorganCron, so you can follow us there as well. So make sure you stay up with us there on social media, and I think that finishes us up for now, and we're ready for today's podcast, so I'll let Ian do the introductions. Without any further ado, here is the host of our show, Typology Podcast, Ian Cron.
1: Jen Hatmaker, best-selling author. You are the podcast femme fatal of... <laughs> femme fatal. that's not the right word, is it? I don't it know, but I... like femme...
2: I like, like it. I'm willing prov- to take on you that You do title. like it? Yeah, I do. I've always kind of wanted to be called yeah. that. Yeah. I'm not exactly sure what it means, yeah. but I like it.
1: Yeah, or how about provocateur?
2: Ooh, nice. That's a
1: nice word, too. Yeah, it is. I like that one. You know what another word is for that that I like, but it's in English, is gadfly.
2: Whoa, Wait a minute. What does gadfly mean?
1: Gadfly is kind of, if I'm right, uh, checking, checking, please hold. Mm-hmm. Uh, gadfly is kind of somebody who's uh, like a little bit like a provocateur. Yeah. I think it's a, uh, uh, oh, no, it's not. It's it, Well, it's someone who provokes others into action by criticism. So oh. that probably isn't right.
2: Well, it's still a real fun word. But, I'm going to do my very best to work it into conversation today.
1: Uh, totally. Be a, Yeah, gadfly. I wish I had the URL for
0: it uh femme fatale is not good either what does femme fatale mean it means an attractive and seductive woman especially one who will ultimately bring disaster to a man who becomes involved with her (laughs) did you hear that
2: (laughs) (laughs) maybe we should have brandon hatmaker on the podcast oh my gosh okay so you
1: are not a gadfly
2: okay darn it you are
1: not a femme fatale you're just a good human being (laughs) who has come on my show to be the victim of my poor french <laughs> yes, vocabulary. Yes, yes. So anyway, host of For the Love author, blogger, wonderful human being, welcome to our uh, our show typology.
2: Thank you. I'm so delighted to be here. You are such a wonderful, interesting guest on my podcast. We are still getting constant feedback on that Episode and I thank oh, you good. so much for inviting me. Glad to be here.
1: Well, thanks for for coming on. Um, so very quickly, uh, you're living in Austin, Texas. Married to Brandon, owner of Ladybird, which I'm the dog, That's which right. I'm assuming you, you named Ladybird before the movie.
2: Well, so the truth is everybody wants to know where we got her name because there is a Ladybird on what's the cartoon? It's like an adult cartoon. Why am I blanking on it all of a sudden? Over not over the hill. Over the hill? Do you know what I'm talking about? Okay, I'm close to it. The word hill is not it. Anyway, there's a there's a there's a cartoon dog named Ladybird, but actually my husband's springer spaniel when he was a kid was named Lady Bird after Ladybird Johnson and so yep. that is actually where her name came from but i did see that movie did you see it because i loved it
1: oh i so loved it
2: me too me too oh, and here's my what's gosh. so funny about this ian my second child is a senior she is very much like that kid she got her dream school was nyu where she got waitlisted um, and oh, she no. was between going right here at, to UT in her, the town she has lived in her entire life and going up to the East coast. So, I mean, it was literally like watching our autobiography play on the big screen. So the two of us just boohooed our way through the entire movie.
1: Oh my gosh. There were a couple of scenes in that movie that I cried, but I have to say that's like, like that movie is such an Enneagram instruction movie. Cause I, I ah. like I've asked people, okay, what do you think mom was? And oh. It's pretty clear that mom was a one. Interesting. You know, mom was a very not self-aware one. Yes. Uh, and she was probably a four. do
2: uh-huh, you think um, so?
1: Yeah. Yeah, just you know, all this, all these new. Yeah, I think so. Um, I
2: wondered if she even had a touch of seven, which was this desire to live this big, exciting life of have this new adventure and have this new experience. And I don't know. That's a good question. I forgot to look at it through the Enneagram lens. Um, The mother-daughter relationship was painful for me to watch. I thought that was really hard, but it was just such a delightful, wonderful movie.
1: what, What made that hard for you?
2: Um I think because I identified my daughter so much with the ladybird character um kind of this artistic color outside the lines big dreams um but I so did not want to identify with the mom so as my daughter is watching this show this movie feeling like it's the story of her life I find myself sitting on the couch going but I'm not like that but I didn't do that. But I've never said that. Like, like, somehow it was some indictment on me, the way that they made this movie and cast that mother. Um, but it, it was really interesting to watch my daughter respond to it and realize how many of, of the same dreams she kind of harbors and how deeply she wants to embrace this next season in her life. And um, so she is. She's heading off to Washington, D.C. in the fall to go to American University. If everything feels terrible.
1: Oh man, it's a great city. It is. Um, all right, well, the last time the last time we spoke, I was on your I was on for, your your podcast right. for the love. And we got to talking. You initially said, "Yeah, I'm a 3." And right. um and we got to talking for a while, and then as sometimes happens, you know, folks will say things and I, you know, I'll start to go, "Huh?" Uh-huh. I wonder, and I, I never tell people, oh, you're definitely not a three, or you're right. not this or that. I just go, gee, I wonder if you should just check out this other type. Mm-hmm. and uh, I, Because I wondered, man, you've just got a lot of features of eight. Now, that yeah. was, I don't know, four, six, four weeks ago, six weeks ago. Yeah. Since then, has anything changed uh, in terms of your perception of your
2: own type? Well, I appreciated the nudge, even though it was incredibly disorienting. <laughs> Um, but so since, since your our first, our last conversation, I, you know, I, I polled my closest people. They're the ones who know you best. You know, my closest friends, my family members and said, this is what Ian said to me. I mean, surely he's off his rocker. Right. And so we all kind of started examining eight a little bit more. I don't have an eight in my family. So it's not a number that I'd spend a lot of time thinking about or studying And so I will tell you that as of the right this minute, I remain not sure because sometimes I read parts of an eight and you are dead right. I, um, I want, I care deeply about justice. I care deeply about the underdog. I'm not afraid of confrontation. Um, I tend to just charge in like a bull in a china shop. Um, and, I I I have a tendency, and I have to work hard against it, to be binary. Um, this is all good. This is all bad. These people are all great. Those people are all terrible. Um, and and just make sweeping generalizations. Uh, I have to I have to really fight for nuance. But at the same time, there are still c- enormous swatches of um, a, of a three that I deeply identify with. Um, that okay. I, which are those for me? That would be. This very like primal need for achievement, um, and mm-hmm. and the accolades that come with it. It's really important for me to succeed, and it's important um, that I think other people know that I've succeeded. And I mm-hmm. want I don't want to just. Um, do a lot of good things. I really do want to be good. (laughs) It's deeply internalized. I really want um, to elevate the people around me. And, um, and so sort of that uh, ambitious, (coughs) hardworking, a a bit of an appearance oriented motivation. I, I identify with that a lot. And I always have, like if my parents were sitting here on this call with us, they would tell you that all they ever had to dangle in front of my eyes was the potential for a prize. Look, you you could win first <laughs> prize or there is a there is a trophy at the end of this or there is an even better an awards ceremony and i mean i would just snap to like a little soldier. So, um that's always motivated me to some degree. So, i i wonder if i could be both. <laughs> is that possible that somebody could deeply exhibit equal parts of two numbers. I'm sure it is.
1: Yeah, well, we are all 9, we all contain all 9. Yeah. And so we're only dominant in one. It's not exclusively mm-hmm. in one. I mean, we we carry features of every type. Uh but we only um gravitate toward and adopt one and we stick with it uh mm. for life. And so it's not like you could say, well, I an I was a 3 then, but now I'm an 8. You know, it's mm. that that wouldn't be uh, at least the traditional understanding uh-huh. of, of the enneagram, uh-huh. um, but threes, three sevens and eights, you know, they're they're all very assertive, um, and we're it's. A, I thought a lot about our conversation when okay. when we were finished, and because um, it just afforded me opportunity to think about the similarities and where they where they kind of move apart from each other. So this is instructive for people, right? Yes. Um so threes and eights, they're both assertive, yep. they're both uh they're both ambitious and they're both competitive. Hmm. Um, the difference is that, you know, your average eight uh you know wants others to uh give them their way pretty fast. Okay. Because they just don't want to waste time. Uh-huh. You know, they're like they're not afraid to get into an argument, but they're like, I just, I mean, whatever. If I, I just want to get the power and the control mm. in the room here a little bit or mm. in life, uh, they'll compete for, six, you know, like sort of dominance. Uh, but it's less about social or status issues. Hmm. It's more about power.
2: Hmm.
1: Right? So... For a three, it'd be much more about status and appearances, yeah. whereas for the eight, it would just be about I'm doing this for power, for the sake of power and and control.
2: Such a it's it's actually a tricky needle to thread um, because uh, some of, both of those ideas find their way into my motivations, um, mm-hmm. and, and I can I can see the differences. If I if you force me to choose and to be honest about kind of what's under usually um, the work that I do and the the energy that I put towards it. And I don't know if this is just a story I've been telling myself. Uh, again, you're, you're really good at this, at helping us discover, is the story real? Or is this just you've told it for so long that you think it's real? I, I'm honestly not positive. But I I think, like as I think about what I sit down to put my hand to, I... I want it to succeed. <laughs> I do. I want it to do really well. I want it to reach the most amount of people. I want it to affect the most amount of hearts. Um, I want it to spur on the most amount of conversations. I would love for it to reach all the goals that people project onto it. You know, I have these teams of people and everybody has lots of goals for everything. And so if you put a goal in front of me, um, I'm going to hit it or I'm going to die trying. Um, and so, I don't know if I need control, but I think I do. I think I do. I think you're, you're picking up on something in me that's true um, because I do want to be right in every argument and think I am right. <laughs> um, or right, or right. at least I want you to acknowledge that I could be right um, or that at least half of mm-hmm. what I said was right. Um, so there is... Because
1: you, yeah, yeah. because you like to be in power or because you like to appear successful?
2: Um, I don't know how this factors in. So you tell me where this fits. I have a very, very, very developed sense of justice. And so in general, it is because I feel like I am fighting for somebody else. I'm fighting on behalf of someone. I'm fighting on behalf of a group of people. Mm -hmm. I am fighting on behalf of what to me feels very right or wrong, Um, feels very loving or not loving. It feels very like godly or not godly. And, and it, there's some sense to me of injustice that is usually the fire that's, it's the fuel on my fire. Um, and Mm -hmm. so in that regard, I just, I feel like I am unable to lay down my sword. Um, because, uh, uh, I feel some sort of deep sense of responsibility to defend and to stand beside people who I think have been marginalized or, so I don't know where that goes. I don't know where that motivation fits and what what I'm trying to get there, trying to get out there, but I find that I just cannot sit it out. I am unable to sit on the sidelines mm-hmm. and um watch other people carry on the argument.
1: Mhm. Okay. All right, so let's just keep going. And maybe it'll yeah, it's fascinating. And this is by the way why I love the enneagram, right? It's not like the journey is simple or yeah. clear. Uh, and if it was, I would distrust it mm, um, that's good. because we are, yeah, because we're so complex mm-hmm. um, that if someone made it too reductive, I'd be like, Oh, I don't know. That just sounds too simplistic. Mm. Um, and sometimes it's uh, you know, it took me a long time to figure out my number. So I don't, I don't, I don't see it as a failure on anybody's part. Mm. I think it's just oftentimes part of the journey. So I would, you know, I, you know, if you, punch your name into Google. You know what comes up, right?
2: I do. I, I mean, I can only imagine.
1: <laughs> so the, um, yes, if we, let me just yeah. read you some okay. of the things that came this up for is, me this, this morning. <laughs> when, yes. Okay. So yep. I, I pumped your name into Google okay. because I, you know, I know the story, but I wanted sure. to, you know, kind of get some, I wanted to get some junk on you. So Great. first things that came up, Lifeway stops selling Jen Hatmaker books over LGBT beliefs. Yep. That was Christianity Today. Yep. Uh, In Politico, the headline was this evangelical leader denounced Trump, then the death threats
2: started. Well, that was dramatic (laughs) if I do say so myself.
1: (laughs) I just want you to know though that I'm not laughing at the situation, but when it said that death threats start, and I think there was an ellipsis after it, which was awesome. And then it was, um, yeah, go ahead. What are you going to say?
2: They just, whatever, whatever is an attention grabber, you know, as you know, I did not write that title. And when I saw it, I was like, no face palm. But anyway, yes. Anyway, nonetheless, (laughs) there I am in Politico.
1: Then there was another, yeah. I mean, there's the high cost of popular evangelical Jen Jen Hatmaker's gay marriage comments, Washington Mm. Post. And then this was a nice one, though. Religion News. Why I'll take courageous Jen Hatmaker over her cowardly critics any day. Yes. All right. Now, I know the story in the sure. background, but probably a lot of people don't. Can you just give us a synopsis? Because then I want to sure. jump into this through the lens of the Enneagram.
2: Well, I mean, now I can see why you're thinking I'm an eight. I mean, that 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 is an eight person that can charge into that space and not die and withstand it. And <laughs> so... Uh, it, it sounds as if I took Capitol Hill. I know it sounds like I um, I wrote legislation and chained myself to the doors, and when in fact all I all I said in an interview, um, which was of course very sincere and very true, and it was prepared. I was prepared to say this, but was that for for my husband and I who've probably done. Um, a fairly deep investigation of our theology around um, the LGBTQ community and um, their, not just their inclusion in, in the faith community, but their affirmation. Um, And so we examined our theology for probably the better part of three years. And I mean that sincerely, just, I, I don't think there's a book we haven't read, a lecture we didn't download, a conversation we didn't broker, Um, And so for us, we got to the end of that um, search and discovered that we had changed our theology on that. That for us, we felt convicted and convinced to not just welcome our, um, our LGBTQ friends and neighbors, but affirm them. Um, and that I felt like there was a holy path available to them within marriage, just like anybody else within the bonds of faithfulness and monogamy and family and, um, and loyalty. And, uh, and so I, um, as you can imagine, and as you just pointed out by the headlines, um, within what at the time was a predominantly, um, conservative to moderate, I would say, maybe, but mostly conservative, evangelical following. The backlash was swift and severe, and it was incredibly punitive and um, loud, very, very painful. And so um, we spent about a year, honestly, recovering just uh, just picking up Mm. the pieces and then uh we are now sort of in this delightfully wonderful phase of of rebuilding and um leading who we have and leading in a new space and um so we're we're sort of uh, most of the pain of that season is in the rearview mirror um but that was that is now what i am known for so after, you know, we've been in mm. full-time ministry for 25 years, we lead a church, we've led churches our entire adult lives, faithfully served the um, evangelical community, um, you know, for two decades. But that is, that's, that I've now been reduced to that. So that's where we're at. That is why I was yeah. in Time Magazine. <laughs> right. Oh, I, I this Time. Yeah, All I right. Time.
1: Okay, so here's the reason I asked. It's not to okay. sort of, you know, beat an old horse. It It's because that's trauma. Yeah. And in trauma, so many things come into clarity, mm-hmm. um, often painfully so. And I'm always interested in knowing how people steward their own suffering, mm-hmm. um, particularly through the lens, thinking through the lens of the Enneagram. So I just, I want to ask you a question because you you mentioned the word several times. It it, it was incredibly painful. Yes. And I'm just curious, how how would you characterize the emotional response you had to everything that happened?
2: Mm. It's actually hard for me to look backwards and remember. Um even when I'm scrolling through pictures that I have saved just on my computer and they're all chronological for the last 6 years, when I get to all the pictures right around that season, I just I feel dark. I, it's so visceral the mm-hmm. the memory of that season and so for me, let's just say let's just say for right now that I'm a 3. Let's imagine that I am a 3 and mm-hmm. um so what people think about me the, my perception my public perce- the public perception of me and sort of being respected is a is a value um mm-hmm. and something that i've um always tried to protect and maintain with integrity so to, to go into a season where i mean f- frankly people just said we weren't Christians and that they mm. called us every name in the book, that we were heretics and that we were false teachers. Dear friends wrote about me and against us and just talked of our faith as if it was just built out of a box of crayons. And, um, it was, it was, I was just, it was crushing. I don't know how else to say it. it makes me want to cry to remember it, but it was just crushing. And, um, there was this little season there. There was a stretch where I, um, didn't quite know if we were going to make it, if we were going to survive it. I didn't know mm-hmm. what our future was going to look like. I didn't know if I could ever, ever be happy again. I didn't sleep. Mm. I, there, every night was a nightmare. Every night was terrible. And, um, and so for me, at, what I have understood myself, it, let's just say I'm still in the three space. When I'm unhealthy, mm-hmm. I disintegrate to the underbelly of a nine. And so that is exactly mm-hmm. what I did. I was entirely withdrawn. Um, I went cold. I went dark. Um, I I didn't, and I didn't tell the truth either. And so uh, if you would have watched me online during that, um, those first few months, it was all just nonsense, just the silliest, most inconsequential thing that I would say, nothing of meaning, nothing of substance, no hint about how, how much, how much we were suffering. Um, and so it took me, all that happened in, in late October. It was like a week before the election. So the, honestly, there was a lot, there was some dual trauma for us. Um, cause I was also sort of of anti Trump vocalist. And so all that conflated at once. And, and it wasn't until Easter so I guess April, that I told the truth for the first time uh, publicly about how much we had and were still suffering, and that to me was the beginning of my healing process. I wrote something on my blog. Mm-hmm. I wrote the truth, and I didn't even try to fix it. And I, I normally try to fix it. I at least try to make it sound better or a little bit tidier than it is. Um, but I just, it was just very, very raw and very vulnerable. And, and that was the moment when, um, I felt like I turned the corner and started healing.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, I'm sorry for your, as they say in Ireland, I'm sorry for your troubles.
2: Thank you. Um,
1: I can remember uh, a dear friend of mine a good friend, I should say year, years ago had a very similar, maybe slightly more dramatic, mm. um, experience. And he, um, well people don't realize, because they're, especially now on the internet, they just don't understand that uh, the amount of destruction yeah. that can happen when it feels like the entire universe electronically, mm.
2: you know,
1: just, you know what, all over you yeah. and uh, deleted your person somehow. Mm. And uh, yeah, there's nothing worse than, than, and more cowardly than some kind of you know, gang attack on the yes on the internet. You know, I, I said to someone the other day, before you hit send on something, you ought to ask yourself the question: Could you actually say this aloud to that person mm. in front of your child?
2: Mm, wow, great filter! And if you if the if the
1: yeah if the answer is no, then don't send it. Don't mm. say it. <laughs>
2: you know, mm, that was <laughs> the, a really good filter. Yeah. You know what's interesting though, for somebody who has uh, frankly overvalued public perception and a sense Mm -hmm. of success in the public eye and um, kind of my, my place. Uh, This was actually really good for me. Um, And Mm. it forced me to reckon with why I value what people think of me so much. And because I chose my conviction and integrity over, um, over um, appearance and over everybody's mm-hmm. stamp of approval, um, it, it. I. I think it strengthened something good and right in me, and I, I realized that I can lose that, and or lose a large, um, a large amount of it anyway, and live to tell. And and not only that, but be stronger, be a better leader, be a more compassionate ally. Um. Be. I. I. I think it shook loose a few of my motives that needed to be they needed to go, they needed to go right into the mm-hmm. garbage. And, and so when I really lost all control over it, uh, cause normally in a, in a lesser scenario, I know how to control outcomes. Do you know what I mean? I, I know how to do it. Sure. I, I can read the room. How do you do it? How- well, right. <laughs> I mean, you know, we're just on your podcast. So everybody already knows the underside of all of our types. So I'm not telling people that anything they don't know about a three, but I know how to read a room. I know how to use humor and self-deprecation to soften the blow. Um, I know when to let the line out a little bit and when to reel it back. Um, So I have a real sense of timing in keeping people sort of in a rhythm with me. And and I know how to win you over. And so a, a combination of those social skills enabled me to kind of uh, to some degree, manufacture outcomes that I wanted more or less. Um, I could either, I could talk you into understanding what I was saying, or I could at least talk you into giving me another chance to say it. Um, but in this case, mm-hmm. when all of that was just too far out of reach and not possible anymore, um, it was <clears throat> ultimately when I finally got still enough and, uh, honest enough to face it and deal and, um, I find I have found that it has produced really important fruit in my life um that I'm actually sorry I waited so long to discover and I, mm-hmm. I think it's made me better actually so I'm grateful now I'm grateful a year and a half later
1: mm-hmm mm-hmm okay well thanks for thanks for your willingness to talk about it uh through, because I think those sorts of extreme experiences. Reveal a lot about who we are, about our type, and about our journey of health and unhealth. And I think it will be very helpful to people who have walked a similar path or are on one. All right, let's talk about your books for a second because, again, I laughed. I'm not saying you're in it, I just laughed because, but I know the, I know how publishing works, right? So, I, you know, I don't know if you, you you didn't write the back cover copy on books probably. You probably had some editorial power over it. We don't even get to really title books, you know? It's like, I've never, (laughs) I've never, I've never not had a fight over titles and back cover copy in my life. Same. Right? Oh, and subtitles right, so. and
2: cover design. It's just a whole thing. Oh, the
1: yeah. subtitles. subtitles.
2: Okay, anyway.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, you know, when I first heard the, the, the title of The Road Back to You, I thought, that's a country song. <laughs> I mean, I just wandered around. <laughs> totally. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It I just stays. wandered around for days going, Really? <laughs> no seriously like you know and it's you know it's grown on me, you know blah 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 whatever yes. but it it you know, anyhow so i don't even let me get into what i felt about jesus my father the cia and me a memoir of sorts um
2: listen i thought uh, anyhow, that was clever i i, I well some it.
1: people did but i had another title that i wanted that book to what, be so what did you want it to be uh, in my, oh um well there's a section of the book uh where i, I write about being in a bike shop and huh? um When the the guy behind the counter, I brought my bike and told me that the bike, the wheels were out of true, Uh, meaning that they were missing a spoke and so they were wobbly and stuff. And I I talk about how I had, I knew right away that that's how I've always felt, out of true. Oh,
2: that was good. And that's the title I wanted was out of
1: true. Um, And of course they said it's too vague.
2: Nobody knows what it means. I know how this goes. Yeah,
1: I know. And it doesn't have enough words for search engine optimization. Anyway. Uh, um, Gross. It's terrible. I know. So you've got a book though uh that I love. The title is pretty great and it's uh, for for the love fighting for grace.
2: Yeah.
1: In a world of impossible standards. My question this morning at 5:30 was, how do you fight for mm-hmm. grace? That sounds like you know, a little bit of an oxymoron, you know, like fighting for peace, you know? Yeah. It's like, well, what what does that mean?
2: Yeah, I that's been my experience. I know those those two words seem to be juxtaposed against one another, but um I don't think anybody would deny that grace is in short supply, uh, right now. Mm-hmm. It just feels like it, nobody is willing to give it to anybody else. That's how it feels, um, that we are here for confrontation and we are here, um, to sort of re- retreat into our corners and, um, and, and grace is so important. I, I, I think it's sort of the glue that connects our communities and it keeps our families together and it builds our churches and it makes us good neighbors. And so uh, it's just I I don't think it's natural. I I don't. I think our natural instinct um, is to find a more homogenous world in which everybody that we've invited in close enough is mostly like we are, you know, mostly believes what we believe in the way that we do and similar experiences and similar worldview. And so that's just easier. I mean, I I am the first to raise my hand and say, when I'm around my friends that share my life experiences and worldview, it's just a piece of cake and it's fun. Mm -hmm. Um, But because that's not how our world works. That's not what it, that's not how being a good neighbor operates. That's not what it means to be a Christ follower. Um, That's not how even America can, can continue to be a good neighbor to the world. Um, We're going to have to fight for something different that kind of goes against our instinct. It goes against our grain. um, It goes against our, this sort of deep compelling gut that we have to be right. Um, And Um, And consequently, to let everybody else know how wrong they are. And so uh, I think it's a fight. I do. I think we have to overcome that instinct that we have to rebut and refute and rebuke and distance ourselves and prove and defend, which consequently means to offend all the time. Um, And so to me, it's a discipline. And it takes a lot of practice and tons of restraint. Um, and mm-hmm. then it becomes this rhythm that you can find yourself developing that is such a good way to live. Oh, my gosh. It's such a good way to live. I I, have, I feel immense sense of relief and and connectedness living more or less in a space of grace. Mm.
1: So... When you you when I was on your show, you asked you actually surprised me with a question, and which is awesome. I mean, you know, it's it's nice when you don't get predictable uh, questions. And but one of them was, you know, how do we actually? And I think you partially answered it. You know, live in a world extending grace and compassion toward those with whom we disagree. And you know, we were talking about gun control, and we were talking about this, and uh, uh, you know, other controversial issues. Um, what do you have a tool that you use that helps you strengthen the muscle of grace?
2: This is a difficult conversation, isn't it? Uh, and it's, um, it's, it's nuanced enough to, to warrant a bit of sussing out in that, um, mm-hmm. I think there's this wonderful umbrella of grace. That's really not just important, but it's the Christians imperative. You know, we don't really get a, we don't get a mulligan on it. Um, Underneath that, I think there are various conversations and they're going to look different, um, even as they are grace-based. So I think there are some conversations in which the grace extended is just, it's just toward differences. It's toward um, different interpretations. It's toward a different life experience. It's toward a different type of human. It's toward a different um, group, Um, toward a different ideology, and and so there, there to me is a lot of wiggle room there in order to, and my best tool is just simply to be a listener. I know that's so boring and pedantic, but um, I have just found that if you're a really good listener and you ask really good questions and you prioritize that as opposed to getting your piece said, um, that, just, that creates nothing but highway in front of a relationship. And so I I work really hard at being a good listener and asking really good questions of somebody because I want to know them. Also under the umbrella, I think is a different kind of conversation in which, and of course this is, (laughs) this can be subjective and change according to whoever is in the driver's seat, which makes it a very complicated issue. But I think there's another set of conversations in which somebody's viewpoint or their ideology, even their theology, is deeply harmful to other people. Um, it, it subjugates people. It keeps them less than or um, outside or rejected or mired in shame. Or, um, or it's, it supports a set of policies that it harms families. And those conversations can still be driven by grace, but I find them in a different category. Um, because mm-hmm. I think there's this idea that if we extend grace to somebody else, it's just simply says, well, just whatever, you know, whatever you think, you know, whatever you want to say, we'll just, I'll just, I'll just let that, I'll just let that be, I, that, I'll let that go unchallenged. And so according to you and this, this eight side of me, I am unwilling to do that. I'm unwilling mm-hmm. to let what I perceive to be harmful ideologies or theologies just go unchallenged even there, I think those conversations can be grace-based. I think they can be respectful. Um, I think they can prioritize dialogue. Um, I think they can be productive and and generous in nature. Um, and so I believe all these hard conversations can live under the same umbrella, even if they take on a little bit of a different shape.
1: Hmm. Uh, yeah, I was thinking as you were talking, of course, uh, we, we all talk about the icon of healthy aids which is Martin Luther King mm-hmm. and and so much of that was rooted in what made him so healthy was this rootedness not in vengeance but in love and justice and 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 grace and concern for the souls yes. of people that were uh, in opposition right to yes. what was right and and just uh so that i think is what you're describing as a a very healthy way of of Mm. you know seeing and being in the world okay well let's let's get into really some interesting stuff i'm again teasing out three maybe eight who knows you know i keep hearing you know both of these dynamics Mm -hmm. happening you know um but uh, you know what's life like for you as a mom because we were talking about that earlier like what's the journey of mom like for you right now
2: Mm. I'm in an interesting, I'm in the launch phase. So, you know, it just felt like for 100 years, I was in the, the raising them phase, um, the, the media meet every need phase, the, you know, mom, their mom's the center of their world phase. Um, so now I have one in college. Um, he's a, he's finishing a sophomore year. I've got another one off to college in the fall. And then I have three left at home and they are going to college every other year until they're gone. Um, so yeah, and you 're are... going
1: you 're going to be broke eating ramen noodles and dirt for the <laughs> next seven years
2: thank you for understanding our future because like we look at each other constantly and go no we can 't do that. It's just, all, all we 're going to do for ten years is pay for college that 's what we 're going to do um, so... i yeah, 've done
1: it i 've done it you 'll make it you 'll make it i 've done it but it 's it 's quite a journey
2: oh my gosh it 's so how dare these colleges they think a lot of themselves um, and oh. so We are in the launch phase, which means uh, they're either out of the house, about to leave the house, or we're preparing them to leave the house. So it's this very um, different phase of parenting in which... We are giving them wings. They are. We are giving them responsibility. We are letting their, the chips fall where they may, based on their choices. Mm-hmm. Um, you mm-hmm. know, they're. We, that's important. They're, we're about to kick them out of the nest, and so they need to be able to make a decision um, without our control or micromanagement. And so. I actually love this phase of parenting. Now, I know a lot, probably some of your listeners who are younger than me, they're they still parenting like littles or elementary. That probably sounds terrifying. But for me, I am an older kid mom. I'm geared this way. I like their independence. I like their emerging um, personalities and their emerging gifts and dreams. I, I There's a delight to watch. And I'm not afraid for my kids to fail. I'm one of those rare parents who's like, well, you are going to, that's, you are going to learn like no other lesson through failure and then trying again or amin- or making amends. Um, and so that's where we are right now. But I will, I will cop to the fact that it, it feels slippery. Yeah, do you know what I mean with this? You're ahead of me just a hair. Like I, I keep, we, my husband and I keep looking around going, are we doing this part right? We're just not sure because it's, it's a little bit, it's less tangible. You know, when they're little, it's just Mm -hmm. easy. This is what time they go to the bed. This is, this is what you feed them. So they'll be healthy. This is, it was just so, it was so um, predictable and routine and manageable. But now we're, we're kind of like, is this, do we step in? Do we let the, do we just let, them guide this decision is does somebody know if we're doing this right or wrong it it just feels a little bit loose um and so mm-hmm. I, I will i will readily admit to not being sure if we're doing this part right um, but maybe there isn't a right i don't know Do you, did you feel this way when you yeah. were starting to let go that it just, there's less instruction on this part than there is in the younger oh, yeah. years
1: well you, yeah you know th- there's that transition you know, that sort of like that saying that people have which is like you know when your kids are little you're a cop and then you when they're a little bit older let's say 10 to you know whatever like 16 you're a coach Hmm. and then from whatever late adolescence on you're a consultant yeah when they go up to college now you're a consultant you you can't cop or coach and you've really got to wait until they call you to consult you know and in a weird way the less they need to do that the better Hmm. um as pain as painful as that can be um where parents get into trouble I think is when they get those time frames mixed up like ah, know, good you're point. 40 when you're 40 and your mom's still a cop there's right. a problem
2: totally yes you
1: know
2: right so you like you a... too early when you should still be coaching like that's what I'm saying oh, yeah so some of those transitions are a little bit nebulous. Um, there's not a hard moment where you realize, okay, now I'm switching hats. Um, and so it's sort of that slide in between those roles that feels Mm -hmm. a little shady. Like Mm where sometimes we're reaching forward, sometimes we're reaching behind and just trying to discern what's right in the moment. It's just, it's we're exercising Mm -hmm. new parenting muscles. Um, and so hopefully by the time the fifth one is this age, we'll either know what we're doing or we'll just be too tired to care. I don't know which one. Either way, right. it's better. <laughs> or, yeah.
1: And, and actually, it just gives you lots of fodder to work with when you want to look back and regret everything you did wrong. And you, and you realize, oh my gosh, nobody at 20-something should be allowed to have a child.
2: You know? <laughs> totally.
1: I shouldn't have even had a driver's license so at 25, gosh. no less a child. Listen, you know? here's it what's so like... funny. Uh,
2: Brandon and I, this is just absurd, and I know it. We got married when I was 19 and he was 21. And I had my first baby when I was 23. So by the time I was 27, I had been married for eight years, and I had three kids. And so oh when I gosh. look, oh my gosh, thank you for being appropriately shocked. Like where we look back regularly to our parents and go, "Where were you guys? How dare you let us do that?" Um, and so now when I look at my 20 year old and think I had been married for a year at this point, and he is he doesn't know anything. He do, he doesn't he is as dumb as a sack of diapers. And so I'm like, <laughs> what what? How, what did ah, we, what ah. are we thinking? Uh-huh. Yes. So anyway, I hear, hear, hear on everything you're saying. Somehow we all survived it. I don't know how.
1: Yeah. Well, I always think that the parenting is cynical as it sounds or as, you know, Eeyore-ish as it sounds. It's just from the moment you, you say go, it's damage control. You know, the, <laughs> the, the universe is hard and there's so many factors in parenting that are so far outside yeah. the, the power zone of parents and the, how kids turn out and, Parents take on too much responsibility for how their kids turn out. It's just so dang complicated. And it is. Uh, anyhow, anyway, so all right. Well, let's let's uh, let's sort of tap into that idea for a second. What would you tell your twenty year old self? Like, what advice would you or, or counsel if you could go back and just tell them anything? What would you tell them? <laughs>
2: Oh, that young fool. (laughs) So if I were talking to my own self, if I was going back to to talk to myself as a um, 20-year-old, it's interesting. At that time, at 20, uh, nothing about my worldview or my experience had ever been challenged. And I mean not at all. I hadn't been anywhere. I hadn't met anybody Um, everybody that I went to both high school and college with looked exactly like me. Um, I went from one all white conservative environment to another. And I mean, to tell you that talk about a narrow worldview and a narrow experience. And I, I would have, I would have urged myself back then to, Open my eyes, open my ears, get out there, meet new people, see the world, even remotely, even by way of education, by way of reading and listening and paying attention, Uh, make different kinds of friends, listen to different kinds of leaders. It took me, it probably wasn't until I was 30 uh, that I became any sort of critical thinker that I started asking any kind of hard question about my environment or my theology, my uh, worldview. I I didn't even know that I was allowed to do that. I didn't know that Mm. we could ask those questions. Um, In fact, honestly, if you can imagine, it was actually Anne Lamott. Um, I don't know if you've read any of, yeah. Reading Anne Lamott back then, that was one of the first times I remember going, wait a minute, you can be a Christian and say that? Or you can be a Christian and think that. You can be a Christian and that is the way that you consider politics or that's the way that you consider the world. I had never even heard that. Um, And so um, I I think that's what I would have told myself, that um, you can slow down on... Hitting all these marks because I had marks to hit, I was an achiever, so i I knew what to hit I needed to graduate with honors, I needed to be married, I needed to roll into motherhood I mean I had all my marks um, and so I rushed toward them at lightning speed um, but I wish I would have told myself the marks were less important than my character and so um, there is time and that is the time that is the time to challenge what you know to challenge who you know and what you think about them and and I, I know that makes a lot of people feel anxious and, and scared, like, well, everything's up for grabs. Um, but my experience is that the core of what is good and true holds, you know, I think in my experience, you can press very, very hard on your faith and it'll hold. Um, and, and, and maybe some parts of it fall away and they should fall away. So anyway, Mm -hmm. that's what I've told my young self who didn't know one thing about one thing. Oh my goodness. If you could have met me back then, you'd just die.
1: Oh, I, you know, I, I know the story and they're, they're, uh, because I, you know, share it in some ways, you know, and, mm. um, uh, I and mean, we can't fault ourselves no in, in a lot of ways. Did you the know, best we could. You know, the only way that you can fault yourself is if you know better and you continue to collude with the lie.
2: Great point.
1: You know? Uh, in the meantime, be be kind and, and move on, right? I mean, that's good. Life's too short to pr- prosecute yourself for things that for crimes that uh, were committed out of ignorance, right? You're
2: always so, so generous what about are, that.
1: Well, I mean, I have to be because at 27, when you were married with three children, I was just getting sober.
2: <laughs> that's right. That's right. Exactly so, right. So, so you were
1: doing great, okay? As far as I can tell, <laughs> you were doing just fine. That's great. <laughs> I could have I didn't I know I had trouble holding a job anyway so um what are you because you've said to me before oh you know I'm not particularly self-reflective as a Mm -hmm. three you know Mm -hmm. and I I don't know you sound pretty pretty self-reflective what is there anything that's holding you back that you are conscious of right now Mm -hmm. from becoming that that's maybe stands in the way between who you are and who you most want to be and and is it a a pattern of behavior or beliefs or whatever? Do, have you are you wrestling with something like that right now?
2: Mm, that's a really good and a hard question. Um, I I would say that if there was any sort of practice or habit that I struggle to kick that. I'm pretty sure stands in the way of being a better at better wife, better mom, a better friend, and certainly a better leader. It is that I tend still t- to hold my cards pretty close. Um, I, I struggle with being vulnerable and most of the people that are really close to me in my life would tell you that's true. And Uh, And I'm married to a person who's a two and so he is and he's a verbal processor so all his feelings come right out of his mouth every single one of them and Mm -hmm. and I am the opposite I I tend to go internal and I'm quiet and I don't know if it's that I I I don't want to it's a combination of things I don't like to uh, I don't like to seem weak. (laughs) I don't like, because then I feel like somebody has some control over me, um, that they are able to either exploit that or constantly recall it, or I don't want your pity. Um, I don't want to be fixed. And so that might be a control issue in there that there's some eight in there. Um, I I don't want anybody have that power over me. Um, because they know something tender about me. And so I just don't mm-hmm. share it. And, and so I think that I, I know enough to know at this point. I mean, I'm almost 44. I'm old enough to know that that has consequences. And they're not good. And that those are, that affects my relationships. And um, it's, that's, that would be the thing that I would love to pay attention to, stay curious about, Um, and ultimately find the courage to lean into a little bit more in this next decade of my life Um, I think it'll just make me uh, uh, more effective at everything I'm doing and it'll be a little bit liberating for me Uh, you know there's there's a Mm. it's not that I don't have feelings they're in my head you know I I think about them a lot and I feel them deeply and I I I have fears and concerns. It's just that I don't like to say any of those out loud. Um, and so if you're in my life, the way that you'll experience that is that I am feast or famine here. So either I am saying nothing at all and I'm asking you 100 questions. Um, it, the entire conversation can easily center on you. Easily. You won't even know I'm doing it. Um, and I'm sincerely curious about you. So that's not just a deflection. I am curious about people and I do love hearing their stories. So it's either that and and, you, and I don't really show any really cards at all, or I have literally spilled the content of my guts. So it's either you get all of it, every gross, horrible detail all at once in, with tears, or you get none of it. <laughs> so that is right. not necessarily a healthy practice. And I sense it and I know it. Um, and so that is work to be done in front of me for sure.
1: Mm. Well, I mean, you are a fascinating, wonderful, thoughtful, and like all of us, complicated human being, you know, and trying to figure out how to become more human. And um, that is hard work. I mean, it's not, you don't get a, you know, it. it's not a hall pass to just roll along. It's, it's
2: not. No,
1: unfortunately, it's not. So... Let me ask you just a couple of quick questions and then we're going to, we're going to sign off here. But okay. do you tend to, have you always kind of rebelled or do you re- tend to rebel against social norms?
2: No. Isn't this so interesting? I mean, I, I grew up so square. Like I cannot even tell you what a rule follower I was, um, I, in a legalistic way. I completely, what did, it, what did
1: it say underneath your, what did it say underneath your graduation photo?
2: Oh No. I was actually voted most inspirational. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's, no. it's just a deep sense of like eye rolling shame in my family. All my siblings oh. were voted fun <laughs> things like best laugh and biggest flirt and most fun. And I was like most inspirational. So I was so oh. square. I was like so by the book and I was very afraid to color outside the lines. And so I find my adult personality interesting compared to my young personality, although they're, they're matched in intensity. It's just that I, my focus has shifted. And so I was just intense and I wanted to get everything right. And I never stepped out of line and I was afraid of God. I was afraid of failure. I was afraid of my parents, even though my parents literally never gave me a reason to be afraid of them. I have, two of the greatest parents that ever lived, but I was afraid of their disappointment. Mm-hmm. Um, I was afraid of not measuring up. I was afraid of sin. I i mean, to tell you, I ran a tight ship. And so mm. it was interesting once um, I got a little bit older and had so many ideas challenged and so many doctrines challenged. And even my just spiritual experience kind of exposed a little bit because I grew up in a very legalistic church. Um, and, to realize that those, those all sort of shook loose. Um, so now it's funny because people say I'm such a rule breaker, you know, I'm such a, a status quo upender, which is hilarious to me because it's not how I grew up. However, the sense of right and wrong is the same. (laughs) It's just that I've, I've shifted my gaze over to a different space and to different people, into different ideas. And so nobody has ever said I wasn't intense. Nobody would have ever told you I wasn't like eye on the prize, like keep your head down until you get there, right or wrong, really strong personality, kind of in, always taking some sort of leadership role. Um, but yeah, you could not have convinced me for all the, all the tea in China when I was in high school that someday I would be known as a rule breaker a faith rule breaker at that. Never did I see that one coming. So I chuckle. I just chuckle sometimes at the trajectory of my life and um, how surprising it can all turn out.
1: Mm, Boy, that's ever true. Mm -hmm. Isn't it? (laughs) Oh, golly. If if someone had told me that I would be where I am and doing what I'm doing and thinking what I'm thinking and all that, I just would have said oh there is not a prayer
2: not a chance no no no
1: no well jen i mean i'm so grateful to have had your wisdom and your spirit and your delightful way of being in the world described on typology and helping us learn about your journey toward understanding who you are um i'm just brought to silence by the mystery of other people's lives and you've helped me do that today it's a really holy space for me
2: thank you thank you for holding that space for us too when sometimes we struggle too um you are a really good leader and a wonderful teacher um through this journey through this process and um i've said it to you now at least half a dozen times but you're you're generous of spirit and it's contagious it it mm. i i appreciate how you constantly tell us let's just go ahead and let ourselves off the hook here. This is, let's just stay curious, not shame based. And that's helpful for me as somebody who wants to get so much right. Um, And so thank you for asking really great questions and um, just kind of holding the line as, as the rest of us sort of shuffle through this conversation and try to find our place in it anyway. That's just mm. so good to talk to you. I wish I could talk to you one, an hour a week. That, would, that <laughs> well. would be counseling. I think that's called counseling. Um, yeah, and so, then we yes. couldn't be friends. You know, that <laughs> that would be point. kind
1: of a, you know, so that's no good. But listen, next time you're in Nashville, promise to yep. to call I Annie sure and I. And I will do the same when I'm in Austin, which yep. I hope is soon because I love that city. Yes, And um, love to, your whole family, peace and grace and, and, and every good thing to you.
2: Thank you, Ian. Great. See you later. Okay.
0: Thanks, you guys. Hey, well, that's it for our show today. We hope you enjoyed Ian's conversation with Jen Hatmaker. I'd like to remind you about our Patreon campaign. If you aren't familiar with it, Patreon is a way for you to support content you love like Typology on a monthly basis. For as little as a dollar a month, you can partner with us to help us cover costs like studio time, post-production editing, fees to license our music, and all the other stuff it takes to produce each episode of Typology. All you have to do is go to www.patreon.com forward slash typology. That's com forward slash T-Y-P-O-L-O-G-Y And select the level at which you want to support the show. And you will not only receive our undying love and gratitude, but you're going to get a bunch of great bonus content as well. Even a dollar a month, folks, is a huge, huge help. So that is it for us here in downtown Franklin, Tennessee at the Nine Conference. We'll be looking forward to the next show. And until then, we hope you have a fantastic week. Bye.